Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, February 2nd. Happy Groundhog's Day to all who celebrate. The news out of Punxsutawney isn't good, and it's sunny here outside of Chicago. But there is something to celebrate this spring, whenever it gets here, and that's the end of the public health emergency that's been in effect since January 27th, 2020, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. President Biden announced this week that HHS will lift the public health emergency effective May 11th. To tell us what that means for health policy and healthcare market innovation are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning, Dave? Groundhog's Day. I did some fact-checking on Puxatawney Phil's accuracy. Groundhogs have been predicting the end of winter on this day, February 2nd, since 1887. That's 125 predictions. Pretty good data set. During this time, Phil has predicted 105 continued winters and 20 early springs, According to the Storm Facts Almanac, who knew there was such a thing, the groundhog has only been accurate 39% of the time. So don't bet the farm on Phil's predictions for this or any year. 39%. Not not good. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how are you? Well, I'd like to complain that it was like 24 degrees here a couple days ago, but the temperatures I understand that are hitting you guys and the East Coast, you know, no complaints really. Yeah, it's supposed to get pretty cold tonight and tomorrow, so bundle up. Now, now before we talk about health policy and market innovation, I wanted to get your public health and personal take on the PHE going away. Uh, Dave, do you think lifting it is good or bad, you know, and why, and how will it affect your behaviors? Uh, you only give me a minute to answer this one, huh? Yep. Well, <laughs> even though the, the timing of the Biden administration's announcement was obviously political and takes the thunder out of the House Republicans proposed the pandemic is over act legislation on balance, I think it's a good decision. The public health emergency has to end sometime and Americans by and large have moved on from COVID-19, even though it's still killing 500 people a day. As a result, this announcement is more for the healthcare's institutional interests than for the American people. Gives them three months to adjust to the post-COVID payment regulatory scheme. That's better than immediately ending these provisions as the Republican legislation would do. At the same time, I'm struck by the sheer volume and complexity of the rules enacted by the state and federal governments to fight the pandemic. I got a massive headache reading the Kaiser Family Foundation's 10-page summary of all the provisions, you know, multiple end dates, cross-jurisdiction, some exceptions, separate rules for Medicaid redetermination, et cetera, just way too much sausage making. So now more than ever, we need to simplify and streamline healthcare regulatory and pricing practices for the good of the American people, not to line the pockets of the healthcare industrial complex. Yeah. How's it going to affect your behavior? Are you changing anything one way or the other? Not at all. Got it. Standing pat. Julie, uh, we know you take photos of discarded masks. How will lifting the PHE affect your behavior? You know, what's funny is I just 
was looking through my photos or something else. And I found a picture I took in Chicago when I saw you of a mask. And it made me realize how long it's been since I've really gotten back on the horse of posting all the masks. And I have so many back pictures. So first of all, let me just say, the masks are still everywhere. And they definitely took an uptick, you know, within the last couple of months. But the masks where I live are not gone. So I'll continue to post, but I might have to start doing kind of a best of or something. It'll be a sad day. I should really make that book now. (laughs) I would read it or download it or buy it. So (laughs) it'll be a classic. I do think we're at a point where most uh, mask and unmask people can coexist without getting into a shouting match. Uh, I'll keep wearing a mask in high risk situations like on a plane and keep getting all the recommended vaccines. I believe in the science. And I also believe there will be health policy implications of the public health emergency status going away. Dave, give me two or three of the biggest policy implications and how will that affect market-based healthcare reform? The first implication is a return to the regulatory morass that gums up attempts to streamline and standardize care delivery, kind of what I was just talking about. The very best thing about the public health emergency was the government's actions to allow clinicians to practice at the top of their license that eliminated state-specific licensure that expanded care access and enabled widespread use of new care modalities, including telemedicine consults and hospital-at-home care delivery. The government has buffered some of the impact by extending telemedicine and hospital-at-home payments through 2024 and by staggering the Medicaid redetermination process, which could result in as many as 15 million people losing their health insurance. But make no mistake, we're going back to the state-by-state regulatory patchwork that governs the nation's healthcare delivery system. The American Medical Association, for example, has made fighting scope of practice creep, as they call it, their number one legislative priority. The AMA is campaigning in every state legislature to cut back provisions that enabled all clinicians, including nurses and pharmacists, to practice at the top of their license. And they're winning in about half the states. It's this type of pro-business as opposed to pro-market behavior that makes me believe the healthcare system must transform more from outside in than inside out. The hogs are still feeding at the trough, What's next for the AMA? Will they try to prevent chat GPT and other forms of conversational AI from improving the speed and accuracy of diagnosis? I'm taking bets. Anybody want to place a bet on that one? My second policy implication is that the end of the public health emergency will compound the financial challenges confronting hospitals and health systems. You know, again, follow the money if you want to see what's going to happen. Hospitals will lose the 20% premium they've been receiving for COVID-related care. I imagine the coding for COVID care has been frenetic inside hospitals, taking advantage of any and all opportunities to code for those extra dollars. It's hard to blame hospitals for this behavior since they've just suffered their worst financial year in recent memory. At the same time, their resistance to value-based care delivery is a major reason they're in the predicament they're in. The loss of Medicaid insurance coverage by up to the 15 million Americans that I mentioned a minute ago will also hit hospitals, particularly those serving low-income populations in the pocketbook. Hospitals that care for Medicaid populations will see their bad debt expense increase. That just makes a bad situation worse. Taken together, these new financial realities, along with skyrocketing labor supply and drug costs, 
make the already teetering hospital-centric business models even more vulnerable. Hospital pleas for more revenues from governmental and commercial payers have largely fallen on deaf ears. Their cupboard is bare. These factors will increase the pace of consolidation and hospital closures. There will be collateral damage, particularly in low-income communities. This increases the potential for some form of provider-driven financial crisis that no one in the government seems to be preparing for. Dave, you wanted two or three policy implications. I've given you two, but they're biggies. Increased regulatory muck and more financial pressure on hospitals. God help us all. <laughs> I'll summarize that in two words, death and destruction. <laughs> right? Well, actually, that's three words. So <laughs> thanks, Dave. Julie, any questions for Dave? Well, along the lines of your AMA thinking, I saw that nursing homes, SNFs, and others in that realm are trying to act in their best interest by lobbying to continue the waiver for the three-day prior hospitalization requirement. Is this clearly about their profit, or could there be some sort of good long-term decision behind this lobbying? Well, Julie, the answer to the first part of your question is easy. Of course, this is about their profits. Nursing homes have seen a dramatic decrease in their volume during covid Anything that could limit admissions, like reinstatement of the three-day hospitalization requirement, is something the long-term care industry will fight with every fiber of their being. The answer to the second part of the question is more nuanced. Hospital costs more per day than nursing home to the extent that waiving the three-day admission requirement reduces spending in hospitals without compromising care outcomes. That's potentially a good thing. Bigger picture... Americans, and particularly baby boomers, want to avoid institutionalized care like the plague. When hospitalized, they will push disproportionately, I believe, for home-based care. More immediate placement in long-term care facilities might compromise their ability to get that home-based care. Um, that result, if and when it happens, would drive up costs without improving care outcomes. If you were asked me where I would come down on this, if I were the healthcare czar, I wouldn't eliminate the three-day hospitalization threshold for admission to long-term care facilities. I think on balance, it does more good than harm. Got it. Thanks, Dave. Now let's talk about market innovation. Uh, Julie, when the public health emergency ends on May 11th, will the pace of market innovation slow down or uh, will it accelerate and why? Well, I guess the good news is that some parts of the PAG have already been decoupled, like telehealth. So the December legislation last year extending coverage for telehealth visits for Medicare recipients through the end of 24. And, you know, that's really proved to be a lifeline for so many during the pandemic. And as they say, commercial plans follow whatever CMS does. So telehealth reimbursement will get kicked down the lane for a little while longer. And frankly, I think that gives providers, you know, and plans, frankly, the air cover to continue evolving their businesses and operational models to include it as an option in care delivery. And that is happening among some of the front runners. Now, the demand for healthcare is only going to go up, and we all know this, just given COVID and delayed care and all that. And our systems can't handle the increased demand with the staffing shortages we're seeing and those, frankly, I think still on the way. So some systems are already breaking in the pressure, no doubt. And while volume is good, non-commercial volume, like what we're going to see with the NMPHE, slammed into this resource-constrained provider situation just isn't functional. And it's going to push a lot of providers over the edge and towards 
some of these other alternative models that include telehealth. So we know that so many of these technologies, if continued to be used, are good for patient experience and decrease total costs. So I think there's a lot going on here still for digital health in this arena. Commercial markets and notably plans have been paying attention to this deadline wherever it lands for a long time. And according to analysts, payer losses from the millions of disenrolled beneficiaries for Medicaid could really be mitigated through the Inflation Reduction Act's extension of the ACA premium tax credits. And that goes through 2025, and it allows some to regain coverage in the individual market. So, you know, we've seen United, Elevance, Aetna, Cigna, Centene, all recently announcing plans to re-enter the ACA market. So we're seeing this play out now. And innovators who are working with plans not only on Medicaid-focused solutions, but also general engagement, alternative care models, telehealth, you know, they all stand to potentially increase their adoption. I'm being very, very Pollyanna-ish. I realize that. (laughs) The downside for me is our beachhead around behavioral health, and we all see it. Patients have really come to rely on digital as their access point for mental and behavioral health, and they like it. They want it there. They don't want to be necessarily always going in. So these virtual-only or hybrid models in behavioral health are a thing, and we'll get to do them for a little while longer, but this is the place I'm really worried. You had it. Necessity is the mother of invention. We'll see how it plays out. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? Well, that's an interesting observation on the MA enrollment patterns, Julie, as Medicaid redetermines and some move into the exchanges. And of course, that's happening at the same time the administration wants to claw back almost $5 billion from the MA plans for overcharging. So we'll see how that all plays out. But here's my question for you. During the public health emergency, HHS has waived potential penalties for HIPAA violations against healthcare providers that serve patients in good faith through everyday communication technologies like Zoom, FaceTime, or Skype. Even if the service isn't related to COVID-19, that waiver ends on May 11th with the end of the public health emergency. So will the lack of HIPAA protections for these types of easy telemedicine consults impede their use to a lesser or greater extent? And if so, how will the technology marketplace respond to that? Yeah, I mean, this is and has been an access issue in every way, plain and simple. And consumers and patients want ease and convenience. And physicians, even still during pandemic times, have wanted to push people to their portals for the most part, which are nine times out of 10, confusing and impossible to use. So, uh, you know, I worry a lot about this. I have to say, though, when I look at the innovations that have come along in the last couple of years, providers, and certainly those maybe from larger organizations, maybe that's a bias, I think have started to really adopt real technology that is more HIPAA compliant to do what they need to do to see patients with telehealth as an alternative. And I think some of the smaller providers or the lack of capabilities that are going to drive a real problem here. I like some of the solutions where, you know, you're seeing staffing models that are using technologies that some people are getting used to. I mean, dare I say Epic. We will see some populations not be affected by this. But again, it comes back to access and and underserved. Yeah, a lot of eggs will need to be unscrambled 
starting in May. So I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. Uh, to me, the end of the PHE means the end of free masks, free home test kits, and free vaccines. And I think once people get something for free, they're not going to want to pay for it anymore. So I think things might get a little ugly this spring. We'll see. Now let's briefly talk about other big news that happened this week. Julie, what else did you see that gave you pause? Well, the federal government just announced something in the last 24 hours that is actually going to help simplify. Imagine that. But simplify quality measures that have proliferated in the last 20 years, certainly with Medicare Advantage causing a lot of confusion, uh, tremendous increased reporting burden, and frankly, just complication or misalignment of some of the simplest you know, clinical tasks within a doctor's office. So what they've done is they've, they're aligning its universal foundation, they're calling it, of quality measurement around HEDIS. And I think this is great news and it will spin off, um, you know, I think a lot of activity as well. I have not heard that. And that's good for uh, Margaret O'Kane, right? She That's knows what good. she's doing. HEDIS. I don't think we've talked mm. about HEDIS on the show before, but uh, <laughs> I think we will. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what else happened this week that caught your attention? I was encouraged to learn this week that the FDA is revamping its food programs to become more responsive. Remember the baby food crisis and better integrated with state and local partners. The initiatives include the creation of a new Center for Excellence in Nutrition, long overdue, and maybe a recognition that we're starting to tilt more in favor of health and less in favor of health care. Where do uh, buffalo wings fall on that chart, Dave? They're awful. Dave, you know the answer to that question. (laughs) I know. Fat covered by salt, covered by fat, covered by sugar, covered by salt, all wrapped up in sugar, fat, and salt. There you go. Guess that explains a lot in the Berta household. All right. Thanks, David. And thanks, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.